0: Okay, all right. First John chapter number 1, First John chapter number 1, if you have a Bible with you, and I'm only slightly offended that Pastor Jake left, only slightly, I'm not, I would say I'm used to it by now, but, oh, ouch, that one. I don't know, I'm just, just kidding, uh, it's good, First John chapter 1. Um, what a difficult! I mean, the last I don't know. He, I still think he has it out for me though, because last time he asked me to teach on money, and this time we're talking about sin. So I, I really, I, I need to get back on his good side. I don't know what I did, but uh, this this topic it was very uh, humbling for me. I promise you, you will never feel uh, feel more hypocritical than when you are asked to teach on the subject of sin, right? Because Part of what you have to do, actually most of what you have to do, is go examine many different places in the Bible that talk about just how wrong and how bad most of what you do on the daily uh, is, right? And I think that's much of our experience. It's, it's very uncomfortable for us. But uh, nevertheless, it's important uh, because as Christians, there are some things we should know about what happens when a Christian uh, sins. So First John 1, I want to read verses 5-5. Uh, all the way through verse 2 of chapter 2, and then we'll sort of dive in and, and have a good time together tonight. All right, first John 1.5 says this, This, then, is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light... As he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. That's an important verse. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But an equally important verse is verse 9. It says this if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, these things write I unto you that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. All right, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I love you. I thank you so much for this blessing, this privilege to be able to teach and preach your word tonight. I I do pray that you would um, bless our time together, Lord. Help me to say only that which you'd have me to and help this time to be fruitful as we study the word of God together. Lord, we love you. We thank you in advance for how good you are, how gracious you are, how merciful you are, and how forgiving you are when it comes to our sin. And uh, it's something we should never take lightly, and tonight I do pray that we would have a new perspective on this issue. And in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Okay, many of you in the room here have kids, and uh, I am no exception. I make up half the children's program on any given day, Uh, so (laughs) I get that. And uh, one of the things that I've always heard, it's not good to do with your kids. I literally find myself doing this almost every day, Uh, and I know many of you have done this as well. How many of you, you say to your kid, okay, please do this thing, and your kid says, why? And it's like, because I said so, you dummy. Like, when did this become a democracy, do it. I asked you to do it. I told you to do it. And so, uh, uh, Riker, I'll never forget this, this one time, where he's like, why do you always yell at me? And it's like, because the first time I ask you nicely. The second time I ask you, uh, like, a little bit less nicely. And it gets increased, it's like shades of niceness until it eventually just gets to, like, literally exploding, okay? And so it's like, see, if you just do it the first time, uh, we had a talk literally the other night. I sat him down, and I'm like, here's the thing. If you would just do it the first time, like, my voice would never be raised. None of that, right? Like, you, it would be such a pleasant time. It would be such a pleasant experience, okay? Maybe I'm being a little too forthcoming about our home life. But, uh, and it's not just Riker either, I promise. But he is the leader. so. Um, it, it's, but here's the problem. That is arguably a very wrong way of uh, acting. And I better go back because I'm going to make the sound guys have a fit. Okay, um, yes, it is true to a certain degree. You are the authority and your kids indeed should listen because you said so. Um, however, a lot of times kids just genuinely want to know why something is up and we're that way also uh, with God. And, and I think that this, because I said so, is sort of the wrong idea of, of sin. Okay, we, Many of us grew up in very uh, traditional, very conservative environments, and nothing wrong with being traditional, nothing wrong with being conservative, um, a lot wrong with your do's and don'ts checklist defining everything about your Christian walk, your view of God, etc. cetera. And uh, I thank God we don't have that problem here. But th- there is a lot wrong with that. And it leads to sort of this carrots and sticks Sort of theology. I don't know if you've ever heard the term, but it comes from this mid-nineteenth-century depiction of these two uh, donkeys that are that are being ridden. And the 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 picture of the one the one donkey, the rider has like he's dangling a carrot or a turnip or like something in front of it, and so the donkey is chasing it. And then the other one, it's the donkey is not listening and doing what he is told to do, and so his rider is beating him with a stick. And so it led to this sort of. Uh, you know, how folklore and all that happens, but it it led to what we now call carrots and sticks, which is basically the carrot is a reward and the stick is a judgment. So it's like, hey, do this really great thing and you'll get a reward for doing it. Hey, do this really bad thing and you'll get the stick for doing it. So reward versus judgment. And is there an element of that, right, to relationship to God? Yes, yes. Okay, with obedience brings blessing um, and disobedience brings consequences or cursings, as the Bible uh, talks about quite often. And so, yeah, there is an element to that, but it it goes a whole lot deeper than that. In other words, it's not fair to reduce the relationship of the the Christian to God into such a a thing. But I think in our daily practice, in our daily lives... We often do this. So, yeah, sure, the topic is what happens when a a Christian sins. And there was a couple different ways that you could go about this because, like I said, the Bible mentions sin a lot. (laughs) It's like everywhere. Um, And so I I do, I promise you, I promise you I will leave you with something that is like ultra practical. It's probably more practical than I'm very comfortable with. Um, But I'm going to make you wade through a little bit of theology to get there. So you will need to listen to a little bit intentionally to, to start with, but I think that what I'm going to give you will be very, very helpful. Now, I don't know why it does this, but this, I'm not kidding you if I could show you this. This clock right here, I think it's actually, yeah, 6.52, but it's flashing between 6.52 and 7.20. I'm not kidding, it's really doing that, so I just had a heart attack just now. Um, i like, I know this is a little bit of a long introduction, but I mean, come on, it's not, you know, anyway, so that's, that's kind of crazy. Um, the New Testament specifically, as I was studying through, addresses this issue of sin, Quite a bit, and it's like, well, wait a minute. Now, I, I thought we were under grace. Like, I thought the Old Testament was about all that law stuff, and when we go into the New Testament, we're talking about uh, grace. And um, while it is true that we are talking about grace, the New Testament spends quite a bit of time defining for us uh, obedience. Right? Like, if you were to keep, if you were to keep on uh, reading in First John chapter two, you would find that it's basically like, look, if you don't have any love for the brother. How on earth am I supposed to believe that you have love for God? So there's actually very many strict demands um, placed on the believer, or maybe I should say that the way that the believer will act in his life is evidence of what is going on internally. And so the New Testament's kind of uh, harsh on this stuff. And it's important because the, the point of that is that the destruction that sin causes is not just limited to the unregenerate, right? It's so easy to look beyond the four walls of the church and say, oh boy, you guys are really living in sin, right? But then in our own hearts, in our own lives, we have many of those same problems, maybe even some worse problems than they have outside of the four walls of the church. So how do we, how do we think about this how do we think about this i like this quote from dr stephen lawson great bible teacher he says this pharisees are aware of everyone else's sin and oblivious to their own but a true christian has a heightened sense of awareness of sin in his own life okay so do you as you think about that statement right do you identify more with the pharisee are you always looking outward at everybody else or more with the true christian are you are you Examining yourself, I think Pastor Jake brings up often uh, the old Augustine quote. I think it was Augustine who said, "Love love the sinner, hate your own sin." Um, You know, is that our mentality, or are we always looking outward? Now, I do want to give you three sort of categories to think of in your mind as we move forward, and it will help you, I think, make a distinction because we often think about a concept like sin, right? And it's like, I mean, when when I say the word sin, like how many how how many things come rushing into your mind, like probably hundreds of Bible verses, different scenarios that happen, things in your own daily life. When you think about sin, it sort of all gets meshed together. And so one of the things I want to do is help you think about it in separate categories, okay? Um, There is a, I'm going to use three P words here, a penal relationship to sin. There's a positional relationship with sin. And then there's this practical. So the penal, that word simply means judgment. So this is our relation to the law, okay? The the penal thinking about sin is our relation to the law. And with that, some words I think of are guilty, death, and judgment. Guilty, death, and judgment. That's what sin ultimately brought into the world, right? And that's what sin does in the life of a believer. It causes him, as it relates to the Lord Jesus and as it relates to God, to be unrelated, to have a separation there. But positional, I'm defining that as as relating to Christ, okay? Positional relating to Christ. So that is not guilty, life and forgiveness. So so with this penal, this judgment, you've got guilt, you've got death, you've got judgment. But as it relates to Christ, we are not guilty. We have life, more abundant life the New Testament talks about. And thank God, we have forgiveness, forgiveness in Christ, okay? And then finally, there is the practical and so this i'm sort of defining as relating to the old man so this is when this is what we're going to look at paul in romans 7 when paul talks about hey how come how come i want to do this over here right but i always find myself doing this over here and we're going to talk a little bit about that but that's the practical you've always got this war going on in your mind and the words that come to mind for me on this are obedience repentance and abiding Does that make sense to everybody? I really want you to see that when we talk about sin, there's more going on here than just this sort of nebulous concept that's found throughout the Bible. There's a relationship to Christ, there's a relationship to the old man, and there's a relationship to the law. So keep that in mind as we move forward. I think it will help you as we're thinking about this. All right. So I think every Christian can grasp the depths and implications of his or her sin, by really accepting four truths about your relationship to God. And we're gonna go through those truths tonight, and I trust that they will be helpful for you. And then afterwards, I promise, after we get through these four truths, I will give you something very, very practical to take home with you tonight. All right, the first one is God's nature and sin. God's nature and sin. Deuteronomy 32, and, chapter, and verse number four, rather, it says this, he is the rock, his work is perfect. For all his ways are judgment. A God of truth and without iniquity, just and right is he. Okay, This is a definition, this is the Bible's own definition of God. Frankly, of the holiness of God. Of, if you will, the measuring stick that we, or that those who image him, images of God, are supposed to live up to. Now, I'm going to Give you a little bit of a nerd spasm. I did it at the front. So this is the only one the whole night, I promise. But here's my nerd spasm for the night. There's something in philosophy that's older than Christ called the Euthyphro Dilemma. The Euthyphro Dilemma. The name just comes from a character in a story that the philosopher Plato, maybe you've heard of Plato. um, He wrote lots of different stories and this is called a Socratic dialogue and whatever. Um, And what it does is it asks a very important question that maybe you have or maybe you haven't thought about before. And the question is this, is something good or right simply because God says it is? Or does God say something is good or right because something is good or right in itself? Is it by itself good or right? Now, the reason this is a problem is twofold. If it's just that God can willy-nilly say whatever he wants is good and right, then, just to use crass, very understandable terms... Things like, are there any kids, things like homosexuality, rape, lying, stealing, things like that, God could have just instead said those things were right, right? So why can't God just name a thing and say that is, that is right and now everybody must abide by this standard or ta-ta for now, you know. Um, the other side of it though, the other side of it would make the standard Something other than God, okay, and that's a problem because God is the creator. God is supposed to be the ultimate standard and measuring line of goodness. In other words, if 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 um, marriage between a man and a woman, for example, is good in and of itself, okay, then then it doesn't rely on God. It can be that way with or without God, and so God no longer becomes your moral standard. And we want to think and believe, and because that's what the Bible teaches, that God is the moral standard for right and wrong. So this is the thing that lots of people uh, think about. In fact, one of the it's still I mean even though this this problem has a solution that I'm getting ready to tell you, um, even today many atheists will object to believing in the God of the Bible because of this issue. They still think it's an issue. And the the solution to the problem is that there is a third way, okay? There's a way out of the dilemma. The way out of the dilemma just happens to be what the Bible itself teaches about God, and that is that God's commands flow from his character, okay? God's commands flow from his perfect nature. So because the way that God commands things to be, whether in the law or, you know, in the moral law that's written on our heart, Romans 2 talks about, okay, those things come from the character of God. So if we're to not lie, it's not because God said, oh, thou shalt not lie, right? That's not the reason why we don't lie. The reason we don't lie is because God is a God of truthfulness. God is a God of justice. God is a God who is to use the word fair, okay? He will always make sure that the right thing, the truthful thing is done in the situation. So it flows from his character. So we don't obey just because God says obey, follow my rules, right? It's a it's a question of character. And so then we're talking about sin here tonight, right? So what happens when a Christian sins? Well, what did God do in the very beginning? God created people God created people, and he wanted them to be created in his image. In other words, well, they were created in his image. God's plan for people was that they perfectly image him on the earth. They were extensions of God. Okay, They were, in some sense, co-rulers, if you will, of the earth with God. Of course, God has, God's domain transcends the earth, but humans were given the earth to Act as God's on God's behalf to be an authority figure in place of God. And so, to the extent that we don't measure up to that image, we sin. The original word for sin, I'm sure you've heard this, it's an archery term that means miss the mark. Okay, the the picture is a bullseye and you didn't get in the center of the bullseye. Okay, And, and why is that? Well, it's because the center of the bullseye, the standard, is the holiness of God, it's God Himself, it's God's character. That's where it all flows from, and so that means when we don't live up to that, when we lie, when we cheat, when we steal, when we commit murder, when we, when we don't love our brother, when we do all of these things, we are not being consistent with who God is or who God created us to be. Do you see the problem? It's not just a checklist thing, right? It's a, oh, we failed to do what God would do in this situation. To be a total 90s kid, we failed to do what Jesus would do in this situation, right? You see it? That's, that is what is, is going on. And in fact, um, how many of you, you, you don't have to raise your hand, but if you want to, I think it'd be interesting. How many of you think, or, or were told, growing up, that in the Ten Commandments, to take God's name in vain means saying a curse word? I'm the first to raise my hand. Was anybody else taught that? Okay, okay, I see the, the hands are slowly raising up. Okay, okay, taking God's name in vain is not a curse word. Now, should we curse? I'm not going to answer that question because Pastor Jake didn't say I had to answer that question. So I'm not going to answer that question. Um, You can let somebody else handle that one. I will say this, okay? It's not talking about uh, curse words. If it were, I would need somebody to tell me exactly what curse words translate between ancient Hebrew and uh, modern English. I would need some help with that. I don't have that. What it's about, the word vain, vanity, has to do with Emptiness or a bit of a false attitude. The idea is that you are not accurately representing God well. And so when, uh, if you look back at the Old Testament, like what they, what God asked the Israelites to do was not to bear his name in vain. The, 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 na- the actual name of God. And if you've never studied that, it's, it's very, very sacred. It's a sacred thing, but it's not the words. It's not the language. It's the actual character of God. It's God's relation. So they were to be the name of God, just like you've heard the term, we're to be the hands and feet of Jesus. Okay. They were to be the name of God to the nations. Okay. They were to represent the one true God to the nations. And by the way, that's our job as well. We still bear the name. We're still not supposed to take the Lord's name in vain. Okay. But that doesn't necessarily mean saying a curse word okay? What it means is we're not to take the name of the Lord. We're not to identify with the Lord, with the name of the Lord in vain by acting contrary to his nature and contrary to his commands. So I'll say it this way. The gravity of sin is grounded in the goodness of God. The gravity of sin, how bad sin really is, is grounded in how good God really is. Now, how did sin enter into creation? Well, this is a big topic, but freedom. Because God didn't just create people to be robots, correct? God wanted people who would decide to freely love him. And wherever you have freedom, you have the possibility of transgression. If we have freedom to obey, then there is freedom to disobey. And that's where it becomes a choice, right? So, that moves us into Number two, number two, which is sin and the law. So first we had the nature of God and sin. Now we had sin and the law. Turn, if you want to, to uh, Galatians 3, 24 through 26. I believe we'll have it on the screen as well. Galatians three twenty four through 26, it says this, Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster for you're all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. Okay, Paul talking to the Galatians here, you will, uh, when you start researching the law, if you thought the law was only in the Old Testament, boy, are you wrong. So much of the New Testament is talking about the law. Why was that? Because early Christians or Jewish people And Jewish people had to deal with the law. And so there's all these controversies in the early Christian church, different churches, different groups of people um, that were trying to figure out what, what it really meant to be a Christian. How Jewish is a Christian? Okay, And of course, when, when, when the thing happened with Peter and the she and the Gentiles were brought into the fold, boy, that really got everybody confused. And so the, the Galatians were dealing with this, Okay, not, not to go all into it. The, the, the Galatians were dealing with this issue of, do we still keep the law? Is the law essential to salvation? How does this shake out? And the idea here is that the law ultimately was a schoolmaster, which that, that word means, um, some translated it as guardian. Uh, it could mean a leader, so it sort of led you to. So the law is a human-relatable expression of God's character. Does that make sense? Humans are, are sort of, we're not the smartest people in the world oftentimes. And so sometimes we need it to be spelled out for us, right? So the law was a way of spelling it out. Now, God started with Ten Commandments, then reduced it to three commandments in Malachi. Jesus reduced it to two commandments. And at the time, Jesus reduced it to two. The Pharisees had reduced it to like 600 and it's either 11 or 613. I can't remember. Over 600 laws, okay? The the Pharisees' idea of the law is not what God wanted to accomplish with the law. The idea of the law was simply to show us what things were and were not consistent with being a child of God. And Jesus was able to boil that down and say, look, if you don't love the Lord your God with all your mind, soul, heart, strength, whatever, and and also love your neighbor as yourself, on these two things hang all the law and prophets. So if you're not doing those, you are very much not abiding by the law. So you see, it's actually very, very hard to be a Christian. It's actually very, very hard to not be hypocritical. It's very, very hard to live up to that standard, which is why... uh, why we need grace, okay? So we break the law, one way of putting this is, to the extent that we don't love God and our neighbor. And I mentioned it already, but First John 2, 9 through 11 in our text, um, it talks about this as well. So we break the law to the extent that we do not love God and that we do not love our neighbor. But the law was necessary. The law was necessary because without the law, the Bible says that there is no... Um, uh, sin, like if there, if there wasn't a law, if God didn't put a law in place to show us, to help us abide by that standard, then we would not be in sin. Question, did Adam and Eve receive instructions from God on what to do before transgressing God's command? Yes or no? Yeah, 100%. Would it be fair, that's a tricky word, but I'll use it for now. Would it be fair for God to have punished them if they did not know? the answer is no okay and you guys say well what about people who've never heard that's a different question the bible tells us that the moral law is written on the hearts of people so we can talk about that sometime but the point is is that god lets us know what is wrong and what is right and it guides us to our need for him it guides us to how we have wronged him right i keep coming back to that what happens when a christian sins well here's one thing that's for sure The law cannot justify Okay, The law's job was never to create justification for sin. Now, you don't have to raise your hand with me on this one. I'll raise my hand, though. Um, If you were ever taught that in the Old Testament, the way that people were justified is by bringing sacrifices to God and appeasing God. If you were ever taught that, that is also (laughs) incorrect, okay? The Bible says that even in the Old Testament, people were justified by their faith. Abraham had faith, and it was counted to him for righteousness. Specifically, it says he believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness, okay? But that's the point. Law, like, it wasn't the goat. It wasn't wasn't the sacrifices. It wasn't the the fat that they cut off and burned on the altar. It wasn't any of that stuff. That justified. This stuff was just for people to understand how they were supposed to relate to God and how bad it really was. What all the bloodshed, all the pain, all the heartache, and all the hardship that came as a result of transgressing the command of God. I do want to read this to you. Galatians 2 16 through 21 says this But if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves are also found sinners. Is therefore Christ the minister of sin? God forbid. For if I build again the things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I through the law am dead to the law, that I might live unto God. I love this verse. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not frustrate the grace of God. For if righteousness come by the law, get this, if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. Okay? If righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. So righteousness can't come by the law. Righteousness can't come from the checklist. Back to the carrots and sticks. Righteousness can't come from doing 9 out of things 10 or 9 out of 10 things right today. And Whatever, 10 out of 10 things, even 10 out of 10. Tomorrow you do 10 out of 10 things right. It doesn't matter, because it's not about the checklist, okay? Now, there's a whole, which we don't have time to get into tonight, but there's a whole theology around the idea that grace does not give license to sin. No, it's the exact opposite. Because we have grace, because we have forgiveness, we become more aware of our sin, and as one person put it, although you will never be, until you're transformed into your glorified body, sinless, As a Christian, you typically will sin less, okay? You will sin less because of that awareness, because of how God and the Spirit works through you. Moving on to the law and the believer. Turn with me if you want to to Romans chapter 7. That'd be awesome. Romans chapter 7, the law and the believer. So we, we had God's nature and sin, and then we had sin and the law. Now we have the law and the believer. So, we're trying to put this together here and see the, see the journey, the theological sort of journey as God has revealed it to us. The law and the believer. Now, who's ever heard this phrase? And this is really weird stuff. Uh, it, it's it's kind of hard to understand, but then I, I remembered that people say this a lot, and I think it will help you understand it. See, according to the Bible, <clears throat> because of the law, sin increased. Okay, there's a place in Romans and a place in our chapter there in Galatians that talks about this. Because of the law, sin increased, And I thought, well, that's kind of, that's sort of weird. <laughs> like, why, why is it that just because we have a law now, <clears throat> we, we sin worse? But has anybody ever heard the phrase, rules were meant to be broken? Rules were meant to be broken, okay? So, it's, it's sort of counterintuitive, but when you think about it for a minute, it, it, it starts to make sense. Like, the world isn't getting better, it's descending deeper and deeper and deeper into sin. Now, don't get me wrong, we're not, you know, doing some crazy Roman torture device things, like, you know, I mean, thank God we don't live in the Middle Ages, I'm just saying, because um, that's kind of crazy. But, but still, the world is pretty messed up. I think about, uh, I really try not to get too political here, but, but it's an important issue. You know, I think about what just happened in the Supreme Court, In our in our country, and the response of that, oh, okay, well, if you're going to take away our rights to kill babies, then what we're going to do is work hard to codify the right for gay marriage. And so maybe you've seen some of this happening. And literally, like 16 Congress people got arrested the other day um, trying to uh, do a a, a pro-abortion sort of protest. And by the way, I wonder if I wonder if we are. As willing. I mean, they were literally proudly being handcuffed and hauled off cameras and everything. I wonder if we would be willing to do that for the case for life as much as they are for the case for death. But that's a separate topic as well. Point being, it only gets worse and worse, okay, for the non believer out there in the world. So the law, when there is a law, rules are meant to be broken. It gets, it gets worse. And given Jewish heritage, the role of the law in the life of the believer, was, of course, a huge topic like we have talked about. So I want to read Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 6 very quickly. So he's using Paul, this is Paul here speaking, of course, and he uses the analogy of marriage. And we're going to read it slowly, especially in a couple places, because I really want you to get this association. It says this, Know ye not, I uh, verses 1 through 6, Know ye not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law. How that the law hath dominion over a man as long as he liveth? For the woman which hath an husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he liveth. But if the husband be dead, she is loosed from the law of her husband. So then, if while her husband liveth she be married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she is free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. Wherefore, my brethren, ye are also become dead to the law by the body of Christ. That you should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. For when we were in the flesh, the motions of sins which were by the law did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. But now we are delivered from the law, that being dead, wherein we were held, that we should serve in the newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. A person. Living in sin goes deeper and deeper with this increasing disregard for God's truth, okay? But, but the person living in the spirit, this is so cool. The person living in the spirit is dead to sin in the same way that in the Old Testament, in the law, if a woman died, her husband was free from that relationship, free to marry again without a charge of adultery. That's the analogy that's being used here. And because, because in our culture, we've cheapened marriage uh, quite a bit, uh, that even for us as Christians, the initiated, so to speak, um, that doesn't hit as hard as it would have for them. Okay, divorce, remarriage, that was a huge, huge concern in Jewish and early Christian times. And it should be a huge concern for us now today as well. Um, but that association is, is crazy, Paul is saying that, look, you're no longer bound to that law. You are dead. You are dead to that law. We, we hear about dead and trespasses and sins, but we don't really think about what that means. Like, like, now, like, now, after we're regenerated, when we come to know Christ, we are dead to that law. We're free from the bondage of it. We're free from the chains of it. We don't have to live in that bondage, in those chains anymore. It's like we're divorced from the law. Okay? Now we're not divorced from living again into the spirit of the law, which are things that Christ talks about. Okay? But the idea is solid there. We're not bound to the checklist anymore. Okay? The checklist doesn't define our faith. What a tragedy when we go to churches, even in the modern days, where the checklist defines your faith. That's the most heartbreaking thing I've ever seen in my life because according to the Apostle Paul, we're dead in the same way that a dead wife, her husband, could remarry, or a dead husband. That wife could remarry. So he uses that very important marriage analogy to explain just how important that this was. Now, of course, there's a problem, okay? Even though we are dead uh, from the law, we're dead to the law, we are living now new life in Christ, newness in the spirit, in our daily lives, there is a war going on, is there not? We started talking about this a little bit, um, and this is where it's very hard to study the topic of sin, just being real with you, without feeling like a total hypocrite, <laughs> um, because it's like, who am I to tell anybody else that they ought not to sin, right, um, because there is this war going on. And, and the Apostle Paul, in in what is truly, and I mean this as nicely as I can, but In what is truly one of the most difficult passages of uh, of Scripture to read in the King's English, in Romans chapter 7, he talks about this. Um, And and, and what he talks about, if you want to, I don't think I have it written down here, so I'm not not necessarily going to turn there. But the idea that he talks about is, look, the things that I really want to do as a Christian, right? The things that I want to do, I don't get to do those. So point number four here is the believer in Christ The believer in Christ, you can change that. And what he's talking about is, I I don't do the things that I want to do, and the things I end up doing are the things that I don't really want to do. And the conclusion, of course, that Paul comes to there is this idea that, um, I just totally lost my train of thought. Anyway, the conclusion he comes to is that there's two different people, right? There's the old man, and then there's the new man living inside. He's warring within himself, the old man and the new man. Anybody else experience that war? Literally every single day, right? What happens when a Christian sins? What happens when a Christian sins? So point number four here is the believer in Christ. This is the good news. This is the best news. This is the most amazing news. If, you're, if you were in Romans chapter seven, just turn over one page to chapter eight. Verses one through four. There is therefore now no condemnation to them, So do you see what's happening there is that even though we have this war going on in our our minds, even though we often do the thing contrary to what we want to do, okay, even though we sin all the time, sometimes knowingly, very often intentionally, even though we do that, that last phrase right there is amazing. The righteousness of. Of the law, despite that failure, despite that sin, despite that missing the mark, despite not being the imager that God wanted us to be, despite not bearing his name well, the Bible says that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. That's a blessing. That is amazing. That is very good news. And why is that? Because, it's because even though we do these things, we're not walking after the flesh. In other words, we don't want to do them, okay? Even if you intentionally commit sin... It should still be very, very problematic for you, okay? If you are somebody who can just, basically, you know, without sounding like a child, if you can sin, 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 and it never bothers you, then you should probably be concerned about your salvation, okay? That's the idea, okay? Are we going to sin? Yes. It's an inevitable part of everybody's life. I got news for you. If the Apostle Paul struggled with it, we're going to struggle with it too, only one person didn't struggle with it. That was Jesus, right? And that is why we need him, okay? That is why the Apostle Paul talks about the doctrine of the union with Christ, Christ in us and uh, we in him, okay? We can distance ourselves through the Lord, from the Lord, through our sin, of course, but positionally, like I talked about, we are secure through him, right? So practically, we may feel a little further away, but positionally, nothing has changed. We're still his... Son, okay. We're still Christ's brother, okay. Now, Christ also gave us the Holy Spirit, okay. The Holy Spirit, and there's a little bit of controversy around this. I'm gonna, I'm going I've, I've been known to, to make a controversial statement or two, so I feel like it's not totally out of character for me. Um, so I will say this, and w- with the with the um, you know caveat that somebody on the pastoral team might disagree with me, and if so, then that's okay um, because not everybody's right. I, I I'll just say it as plainly as possible. Um, I don't believe, I don't believe that the Holy Spirit convicts believers of sin. I don't believe that the Holy Spirit, now that doesn't mean, we already talked about believers have a heightened awareness of sin. We've already talked about that, okay? You're, you don't get off the hook, right? That's, that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is, there's one passage in the Bible that talks about the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and what it says is that he is going to reprove or convict, we could say, the world of righteousness. And later on in the very verse, it's, or of sin rather. And later on in the very verse, it says of sin, basically because they don't know God. Okay. So does the Holy Spirit convict of sin? The answer to that question is a resounding yes, but I think he convicts the world, unbelievers of sin. The Bible is very clear in many other places about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Here are some of the things that are said. The Holy Spirit leads us into all truth, glorifies Christ. Through the adoption, we relate to God as Abba, Father, which is a term of endearment. Uh, The Holy Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are his children and heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. The Holy Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. He intercedes for us with inexpressible groanings, things that we don't, the Bible says groanings that we can't even utter. We don't even know how to pray for ourselves. And yet the Holy Spirit is praying on our behalf. And then finally, he tunes our hearts into God's moral will, okay? Helps us to understand right from wrong. Your old man and the powers of darkness, Satan, demons, etc. those things point toward your sin. They will always make you live in the past, right? And yet Christ says, God says, to quote the old song, what sins are you talking about? What sins are you talking about? I don't remember them anymore. By the way, the Holy Spirit is God. If, that, if, if all this is true, if all this is true, the old man within you, that guilt that you have because of the war in your mind, Satan, the powers of darkness, evil, they point toward your sin. The Holy Spirit, for the believer, he points you to your Savior. He points you to your Savior, okay? A little bit controversial, but as I read the Bible, I believe it's true, okay? The Holy Spirit is not making you feel guilty for sin. You handle that on your own. You feel guilty for your own sin the minute you accomplish it or the minute you do it, okay? That's not necessarily from the Holy Spirit, at least I don't think. I think that's from your old man. I think the Holy Spirit the whole time is saying, why aren't you choosing Jesus? He's better. He's better, okay? Your new man is better. I love this verse. Romans chapter five, verses 20 through 21. We're almost done here. says this, moreover the law entered that the offense might abound. Remember we talked about this, the, the offense getting worse and worse. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Let me give you three very quick bits of practical application here. Really, they're all wrapped into one. I call this a little bit of spiritual CPR, okay? It doesn't get any more practical than this right here. And there are re- references, I'm not going to read them, but you can write them down if you want to. Remember these and go back to these, I think, often. Uh, I, I like the term, I like, I like thinking of it as far as CPR because sometimes sin makes you feel like you just can't breathe. It really does. And yet you have new life in Christ. You have, in a sense, new breath, if you will, in Christ. We sing that song, it's your breath in our lungs. We mean it, okay? Confess, praise, and repent. That's your spiritual CPR. Confess, praise, By the way, sin's inevitable. I hope you didn't think this was a lesson on how to sin less. Because it's impossible, right? I mean, apart from Christ, yeah, you'll eventually get better and, and, and better as you go on, hopefully. But some people don't. Some people don't, okay? This is not 10 ways to sin less in your daily life, okay? This is not the message. It's what happens when a Christian sins. A Christian is going to sin. The way that you react to that is found in this, the spiritual CPR, Confess. Confess your sins unto God. We've read that already. And then praise. Psalm 51 is a psalm entirely of David's sort of remorse. It's his remorsefulness. It's his repentance about what happened on the rooftop that day with Bathsheba. Um, And that whole episode. It's his repentance. And most of the time in that psalm, He's praising God for how good he is. You know, God is still good even when you're sinning. God still loves you even when you're sinning. Literally, as you are sinning and your old man is winning that war, that's where I believe the Holy Spirit is at the same time saying, stop, because this is better. Choose Jesus, it's better. Choose the Spirit, it's better. Choose life, it's better. No matter what the sin is, life is always better. So praise God in the middle of it. Because of how good he is. Because of how gracious and forgiving he is. And then the last one is just repent. Look, ultimately, that's the message. Repent. Repent. You, re- you will find that word a ton in the New Testament. Repent. That means to turn. That means to turn. Turn away from sin. You don't have, you know, whatever that pet sin is, you don't have to keep doing it. You're not a slave to it. You're dead in the same way that you are freed from the covenant of a, of a wife or a husband who has died. Just like that, Paul made that connection. You are dead in that regard. You don't have to keep choosing it. So confess, praise God for his forgiveness, and then continue to repent. All right, let's pray. I'll let Matt do whatever Matt does, and we'll go from there.